Our second lesson comes from the book of Genesis. This is a long one. If you happen to be new to Christ the King, welcome. We read a lot of the Bible around here. So this is um, Genesis chapter 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 4. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with a seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with a seed in it. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters, and every living creature that moves, of every kind, with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image and the image of God, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth 
everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Lord, what a, what a gift. I, I'm aware, Lord, this morning um, of the privilege of being able to hold in our hands and read out loud and hear with our ears, Lord, words as ancient and holy as these. That God, by your grace and a mystery to us, you have somehow seen to it, Lord, that these words would cra- travel through space and time and make their way here to be with us as you, Lord, are here with us. And so I ask you, just word of God, would you speak to us, Lord? Our prayer this morning is that your word would be living and active in us and through us, that you would gift us and grace us, Lord, with the ability to hear you, Jesus, and see you, Lord, as we're meant to. Say what you need to say, Father. In your name, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That's a long one. Well done. We made it through. Great job. I suspect um, for some of us, that may be the first time we've read that much of the Bible all at once in church on a Sunday. If you happen to be new to being Anglican, um, I remember the first time that I heard like almost an entire chapter of the Bible read in church. And Um, had the thought, like, I don't know, somebody didn't explain them the rules. We're supposed to read the verses. The verses are short and the sermons are long. And um, Anglicans get it kind of the other way around. The verses end up being long, and then sometimes the sermons are short. Today is Trinity Sunday in the church calendar. Um, Last week was Pentecost Sunday, the day that the church calls us to celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. Um, And today is Trinity Sunday, following Pentecost Sunday in the church calendar, so that you don't, um, you know, forget or get confused um, that the Holy Spirit didn't, like, come for the first time ever at Pentecost. He did, in fact, come in a new way. He did, in fact, do a new thing. The church was born. Something new happened on Pentecost, but it wasn't like the Holy Spirit was created that day. Trinity Sunday is meant to remind us we go all the way back to the beginning of the story in Genesis 1, and we see, of course, here in Genesis 1-1, in the very beginning, uh, the Spirit was there, the wind of God hovering over the face of the deep. In other words, he's been around a long time. And we're meant to draw the connection, to some degree, between what happened last week at Pentecost and what's taking place here in Genesis 1 in the creation of all things. In other words, in short, the church wants to make absolutely sure that you don't forget that wherever the Holy Spirit is, when he is at work, what he is in fact doing is creating new life. Um, That that's what he comes to do, is to make something new. And wherever he is at work, that is his business, that is his aim both at Pentecost and then, of course, here in Genesis 1. 
um, today, because it's Trinity Sunday and Pentecost last week, is also the official start of ordinary time. So for those of you who may be new to this whole um, Anglican thing, our seasons change with the church calendar. And with those seasons, um, a new focus on the life of Jesus and um, a call from the church. So we call it ordinary time. It's the longest season of the church calendar. It stretches from the end of Easter with Pentecost Sunday all the way to the beginning of Advent. It's our great green growing season, so-called. The longest stretch of time. Um, and there's a lot that could be said about ordinary time, but here's the thing that, for whatever reason, has really been impressed upon me the last couple of days as I've been thinking about this. Um, I, don't, I don't know if, the, if I can say that this is true of all of us, so I will say of myself. Um, you know, I long for, often in my life, these like, pretty like, profound and supernatural encounters of God. Like, I hope for them. I want them. I expect them to some degree, not just because I'm a professional Christian, just because I'm like, you know, maybe an average one, living in the real world, and I hope for God in my life. And sometimes, you know, maybe most of the time even, we want those experiences, encounters of God to be like really big and earth-shattering, you know, kind of like epic, miraculous, supernatural. What's curious to me, and I think important about ordinary time, is the reminder that, you know, when Pentecost happened, which was, let's, I mean, epic, if ever there was something that was kind of like epic in a rock and roll way in the church, it was Pentecost Sunday, you know, tongues of fire, um, pretty wild. And so they had this incredible experience of the Holy Spirit, supernatural for sure, people encountering God in, um, in, in crazy ways, and then, you know, they all went home. <laughs> and I've been thinking about that a lot the last couple of days. You know, like if I had found myself, for example, as like a Persian person praying and worshiping God, and then my, oh, I don't know, uh, my Jewish neighbor to the right of me who speaks, you know, Aramaic or whatever, can like said to me, you know, I understand what you're saying. Even though we speak different languages, like here in this moment of worship, like I, I understand what you're saying. If I had had an experience like that with God where I was like speaking Aramaic <laughs> to my neighbor, um, and then I went home and had to just like fold the laundry, you know what I mean? I just wonder how Pentecost changed the way they went home is all. Like if I went home to my kids and had to put my kids to bed, you know, you'd want to say like, you know, just like a few hours ago, I was like in the throes of a miracle here. And now I'm back to parenting you, and you're less miraculous. The socks are the same old socks, you know? Maybe fold and put away. I don't know if they wore socks in the first century, but you understand my point. And I think it's a reminder that, you know, however the Holy Spirit works, which I actually do believe that we can and ought to expect rightly these grand and sort of supernatural encounters with God, that you'll have those in your life with him. But man, the majority of it, the longest season, the biggest stretches, where the growth really happens, the great green growing season, is when those moments with the Lord end up this moving into your ordinary life and working themselves out in ordinary ways, you know? That that's where the truly sort of like miraculous things, the life-changing things, the transformation really happens. And if Genesis 1 has come to remind us, like, I mean, it preaches a lot of powerful things. I could spend maybe an entire year on these verses, and then some. You'll never exhaust them. They're infinite. One of the great gifts of Genesis 1, though, is the reminder that faithfulness, the most miraculous kind, really doesn't ever get any better than just like, you know, a sparrow choosing to fly from its nest. 
the instinct to just do the thing that you were created to do in the most ordinary way, that real faithfulness is lived out in that kind of stuff. It's the seedling stretching for the sun or the earth making its rotation around, just like ordinary life lived in the most faithful ways, that there is really ultimately actually something truly miraculous about it, something powerful, something good. Ordinary time is the reminder that this God is committed to just moving into the world and living life in it and with us and alongside us. That's what he wants. He celebrates the sparrow leaping from its nest, not because it's like epic (laughs) and different and never before seen, but just because it's faithful. That bird is doing exactly what it was created to do, and look at it go, in its joy and in its freedom. Our culture is sort of endlessly obsessed with innovation, with greatness, moments of them, people doing extraordinary things. And then I read Genesis 1, and it's almost monotonous. It's not almost. It is monotonous. A very intentionally and artfully crafted liturgy that's meant to make you hear over and over and over again, and then God said, let there be. And he made creeping, crawling things, and then he made the sky, and then he made the water, and it was so, and it was good. And then God said, and then he made this, and then he made this, and it was so, and it was good. Over and over and over, and the monotony of it all. And there's something about that that I can like, an invitation that I feel. Like that those who have eyes to see and ears to hear will hear that maybe the grand work of God is just for all of us learning to live our lives very naturally, as naturally as the seedling stretching for the sun or the sparrow that goes from its nest, just living in faithfulness with God. What a miracle that would be, something to celebrate. That you, I guess, in other words... For you to become a person animated by God's life and filled with his spirit is not for you to become something unnatural or extraordinary, but actually rather for you to become the most natural and an ordinary you. That that's really who we're made to be. I was reminded as I was thinking about this of this like brilliant quote. No doubt you've heard it. Even if you haven't read Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, this is the one that gets like pulled out and quoted, and it's because it's brilliant. Um, Chesterton said this about monotony. He said, Children have abounding vitality because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, Do it again. And the grown up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. I'm not suggesting for one moment 
that real faithfulness or real life with God is really just for all of us to accept things as they are. You know, that even though your life may feel really quite dull and insignificant to you, actually, <laughs> you should just like learn to accept that because that's good, you being bored in your life and in your faith with God. It's okay. It's not bad. No. What a tragedy that would be. That would be a tragic abuse and misuse of Genesis 1. It actually aims to do exactly and to say exactly the opposite. And I'll explain more about that in a minute, like why we have Genesis 1, what it means to preach to us. So I'm not suggesting for one minute that real faithfulness with God is for all of us to just, you know, look out and just accept things as they are, and God loves everything exactly as it is. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that all you need in order to live a God-animated, spirit-filled life are these three things. Your ordinary circumstances of your everyday life, the Holy Spirit of God, and a desire to bring those two things together. That is all that you need in order to live a God-animated, spirit-filled life, which every single person in here has access to. The ordinary circumstances of my everyday life, the Spirit of God, and a desire to see those things come together. And then, y'all, what I am saying to you is the possibilities truly are endless. Genesis 1. Let's talk about the aim or the point of it for a minute. It must be said, firstly, that this text was not writ written uh, with the intention of providing us with a scientific recounting of the origins of the universe. That's just not what it's meant to do. Meaning, when the authors of Genesis sat down, who, by the way, were scribes living in exile, uh, under the shadow of empire and tyranny, away from their homeland. When these scribes sat down to write Genesis, it was not in order. Their great hope was not that you would understand the scientific origins of the universe. <laughs> it's not what they set out to give you. Their aim was something else entirely. This was theological history. It was a pastoral word of hope, a response to real tragedy and crisis. In other words, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write something that would move people and speak to them in their moment and also help them understand God's relationship to the world. I'm not saying that that isn't part of it, but in making it primary, what we've done is we've missed out on the really like pastoral word of hope that it's meant to give. Like You might be sitting there thinking that Genesis 1 actually doesn't have anything to do with or to say to you about your real life. And that grieves me. If it grieves me, I suspect it grieves the Holy Spirit. Here's why it has everything to do with your real life. Because the tragic circumstances into which these scribes were speaking were the Babylonian, was the Babylonian exile. The exile had happened, meaning Babylon had come and had destroyed Jerusalem, had destroyed the monarchy, had destroyed the temple, and all of these thousands of Israelites had been carried into exile in Babylon. Hard to overestimate or exaggerate how big of a deal that this was. In the Bible, this is the nadir. It's, it doesn't get worse than this. It's the darkest hour. It's the end of, of ends. The death of God. The death of Israel. 
So you talk about a faith crisis. Your Hebrew Bible, your Old Testament, was born out of a faith crisis, the ultimate kind. Absolute and total devastation. People who were left then in Babylon wondering, how can we possibly be the people who God's called us to be, and who is God here in a time like this, in a place like this? And it was into that set of circumstances, and this will sort of like never cease to amaze me, that the Holy Spirit whispered into the ear of certain scribes and told them to, in the shadows of empire, go and find a place where they could write down the words of God, where they could commit scripture, pen to paper, and remind God's people of who he is and what he'd done. And so somewhere sitting in a back corner of Babylon somewhere, some scribe sat down and heard the Holy Spirit say in his ear, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Here's why I think that is so powerful. is because that isn't just meant to be a kind of like literary description of something. <laughs> Describing to you what the origins of the universe, what they were like, primordial mass. That's part of it, maybe. But actually, that, those words, that language is meant to describe how it felt to be a people in exile who had lost everything, had experienced the ultimate destruction. Their world was gone. And there's something about that language of a formless void that is so apt and spot on. Genius, really. So to people who are feeling that way, formless and void, God says, the word of God comes and reminds them over this formless void the wind of God, the Spirit of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. In other words, he's here. He's been here. He's working to do something new. In the beginning, Genesis, we call it in English. In Hebrew, Bereshit. In the beginning, when? It was meant to be a reminder to people who thought there would never be a new beginning and a new start that actually, wherever you are and wherever God is, the ordinary circumstances of your life and the Spirit of God, if those two things exist, then there are endless opportunities. There's new life is possible, not only possible but probable, that we're meant to expect it from him. So if you and when you find yourself in a place that feels formless and void. You're meant to know. Actually, Genesis 1 was written exactly for you. That the word of God came to people in exactly those same circumstances. And here's the thing I want to say about this. And just to put it into real life terms, there is a kind, you know, we say often that God created the world out of nothing. Hebrews, Romans affirms that in the New Testament. God made the world out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And there's something really powerful about that because it affirms the power of God to create in a way that only God can. But we're meant to hold that affirmation over here with this other affirmation that actually in Genesis 1, it wasn't just totally nothing. It was a kind of chaos that existed, a formless void. The imagery in Hebrew is a something. It's not nothing. It's dark waters where nothing can live. And the reason that I think both of those things are true is because those images 
speak to us differently. If you've ever been in a place in your life where life just kind of feels like nothing is happening and everything is happening, it's chaos, the chaos of everyday life, or the chaos of not knowing where you are or who you are or what to do, and so all this stuff is happening and yet nothing is happening, to me that is such an accurate description of the way so many of us live our lives. <laughs> everything is happening and kind of nothing is happening at the same time. And so two people like us, then, the Word of God moves into exactly that sort of circumstances to say, ah, yes. And it is over that nothingness, over that chaotic emptiness, that the Spirit of God wants to hover and move and breathe new life. Bring something new to bear. That he can, that he will. And so in closing, as I was sitting with this text, I don't have something more profound to you to say than this. God has something he wants to say to you. And you need to hear it in order to live the life that you were created to live. You actually cannot afford to live your life apart from the Word of God. Genesis 1 has so many things to say, and ultimately, that's what it's saying. And then God said, let there be light. And then God said, and then God said, and then God said, and then God said, over and over, and it was so. Do you want to, do you hope to hear from the Lord? It's why we take prayer and reading our Bible so seriously around here is because if I'm going to grow into ordinary faithfulness in my life, part of that will be learning how to hear from the Lord, to know and recognize his voice, to believe that he is speaking into my life. And so I would commend to you, in these next few weeks, through ordinary time, what if you opened up your mind and heart in a new way to say, I would like to, into this, whether it's chaotic emptiness or just the monotony of life. I would like to hear from the Lord. I hope to. I expect to. I would like to hear from God. I need to hear from God. Jesus said, we can't live by bread alone, but by what? Every word comes from the mouth of God. Your God-animated life, your real life, your ordinary life lived in the most faithful way comes from his mouth. It's found in his word, spoken over you, in you, through you, through this Bible, through your prayers. You cannot, y'all, afford to live without it. It doesn't have to be epic and exceptional. In fact, it's meant to be ordinary, you know? So may it be so, Lord. We give you, God, this time to say, Lord, what it is that you need and want to say to each of us where we are. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. All potential and possibility for life, Lord, is within your word. You speak things into existence. 
You hold the universe by the power of your word and each of our daily lives, the ordinary stuff. And so I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to your church, that you would give us ears to hear you, that you would settle us, and that you would, Lord, hover over the waters, Jesus. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.